0: Welcome to another episode of The Zag. It's Eric Dishobe here. Today we're talking with 2013 fellow Brian Rosario is here, no longer in LA, sadly, but he's going to tell us where he is. And he has some insight on some interesting topics that have been in the news lately. So excited to talk to him. Thanks for listening to The Zag. Let's get to it. All right, Brian, good to have you on. You know, listen, we just wrapped the uh, application window. What do you remember about applying to NLC in 2013?
1: Well, I'll tell you, it was was part exciting, but also nerve-wracking. I mean, I just finished 12 years of coaching college basketball, met Jaya at an event uh, when I was a government affairs director for the uh, torrance chamber of commerce and i'll tell you you know going through the actual application and answering some of those questions and throwing you know who you are out there i mean it it was it was challenging but i tell you very rewarding i I wouldn't have traded for the world
0: (laughs) well i'm glad you mentioned college basketball coaching so you are in what state right now i'm in arizona and doing coaching right now or what's your actual job these days
1: yeah, so so the thing that pays the bills is actually a mission advancement officer for uh, Seton Catholic Preparatory, which is a Catholic school in Chandler, Arizona. However, um, I uh, obviously a little bit of a recovering college coach and getting my fix by being the head coach at uh, Chandler Gilbert Community College.
0: Nice. And so have you guys started the season yet or it's coming up soon? What's that? Have you guys started the season yet or it's coming up soon?
1: It's coming up. we just started our first practice two days ago, so um you know the team's working hard I don't know how that'll translate into wins, but uh for the for it being this early, I will take the uh the work ethic
0: and then what is your offensive philosophy or like what's your coaching niche who are you most comparable to
1: you know I, probably John Wooden in terms of <laughs> You know, obviously everyone is right from LA. Um, but, but at the same time, I think I've molded my offensive philosophies with everyone I've studied, which is a lot of different coaches. I'm, I, I like to put people on their heels and just run. I mean, I'm a Magic Johnson fan, Showtime Lakers fan. So um, I like to get out there, but at the same time, it be very controlled so that, you know, you, you're not surprised by any defense.
0: Mm-hmm. And when people come watch community college basketball for the first time and you get a chance to talk to them afterwards, what do you usually hear? Are they surprised at the level of talent or level of competition or the speed of the game? Like what usually stands out to them?
1: Yeah, I, you know, it, it's. I talk about this often. You know, in, in California, we were, we we're very fortunate to have every level collegiately from high level Division One on down to NAIA Division Two, and then junior college. Here in Arizona, they really only have two levels outside of the community college level. You have high level, Division One, Pac-12, and then you have, you know, NAIA Division Two, which is really kind of the lowest uh, level you can play. So a lot of these players think they can play D1, but obviously, if they're not getting the calls, not getting the letters, then they resort to, well, I'm a little better than NAIA though. When in reality, you know, it, only 6.8 percent get to play at the next level. Out of all of those high school seniors playing basketball, and so you know, it, it, it's a level that I think you know. You talked about is it eye opening? It is uh, in terms of the the great coaching that we have in our conference, but at the same time, the the ability to play at a high level, even when it's just community college.
0: So I wanted to have you on because I miss having you in my life and talking to you, but also because there's a big college sports scandal that broke last week with uh, payments to players through shoe companies. And and I was curious, like, what would be the progressive person's take on college athletics in terms of players getting paid, not getting paid? What's your stance on that?
1: Yeah, I'm, uh, you know, now you're dating me a little bit. (laughs) Um, I am a Gen Xer. So there's a piece of me that I am proactive and progressive in the sense of, uh, you know, benefits to players. But then I'm also a traditionalist where, you know, this is, you know, money's been part of college athletics for a long time. Let's just get it out there. And at the same time, uh, shoe companies have been in college basketball or not even college basketball, but grassroots basketball for a very long time. And it was only a matter of time that, I think the lure of additional money, uh, and it's not like those guys who got caught don't have money. And I think that's the problem with college athletics right now is that, you know, I, I remember my first job. I was living in a dorm. I was a restricted earnings coach, making sixteen thousand. I had to negotiate a meal plan just to have a meal once a day and i worked myself up from low level d1 to high level nai to obviously the ivy league and wcc so you know money to me was something that was always a byproduct and it was about being able to coach a game for your career nowadays it's all about the coin you know and and trying to get easy money and i think that's what you kind of heard heard this week with you know, having hands out, and it's unfortunate that I think it was something that was a little bit stumbled upon, um, because the guy who actually bro- broke broke it for the the FBI was someone who was uh, caught with his own um, kind of money situations with his with his company. So,
0: so when you have uh, interacted with players over the years, do they feel exploited? Do they feel undervalued? What's the common sentiment?
1: yeah they they do. Um I you know, obviously, we know what's in the news right now in terms of, you know, how loose Trump's lips are and and just the divisiveness uh, within our country. Um, just recently, I heard from a former player who uh, we recruited out of St. Louis to a small college in Southeast Kentucky. And you know, it 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 uh, broke my heart when I heard her say, you know, there was racial uh, tension towards me and while I was there, and this was 2004, 2005. And so it, it happens out there. Now, in terms of college athletics, I do think uh, players are, uh, they feel they, they're being taken advantage. I think when they see how much money is coming in, not only to their own coaches, but their own school, the programs, and they don't see a dime. I think it's very—it's uh, uh, tough for them to to see, you know, what their benefit is. Uh, I think it's sometimes clouded. I've obviously, an education is something that you really can't put a dollar figure. You could put a dollar figure in terms of how much tuition and room and board is, but you don't—you can't put a dollar figure on what that degree means throughout a lifetime. And and that's what's difficult with college athletics right now.
0: So, in terms of solving the problem that's present in the system now, is it a case where it makes more sense to spin off college football, college basketball, and just make it an actual league and just sort of end amateurism for uh, those two sports or sports that maybe hit a certain financial threshold? Do you think that would work?
1: You know, I I don't I I don't think I think once you start separating yourself and and I know football has kind of taken lead in terms of this you know power five and. Versus everyone else, you know bowls versus um, uh, the championship series. You know, I think once you leave that, you lose college athletics. You lose being a student athlete. I think if they're smart, and I've talked to a few people, I would love to. I know we have a lot of bright NLCers out there, and and some of those who are lawyers. I would love to work with a few of them. I think, I think the the way you can be progressive in terms of being on the side of players is set up something kind of like a, a, an RIA or a IRA or something where you know it's an investment into them. They might not get it right away and it might be something that they have to wait a while and, and get a degree to get the benefit. But I think in terms of medical in terms of the investment that coaches and programs are putting into these players. I think if they were to come up with a program where they can invest some money, it's their money that they're investing. It grows over time and then at some point after they earn a degree, they can move it to their own IRA or they can they can cash out. But it's something that is more long-term and teaches teaches the the money and investment side of you know, to be quite honest, they don't teach in school, yeah. you know, but it's an investment in those players long term.
0: I like that. And with your own team and the season coming up, have you with your team talked about what you guys will do for the national anthem? Uh, those kind of protests? Does that come up at all?
1: Ah, uh, you know, that that <laughs> that's a tough one. Um, we have a few players who have voiced their opinions, opinions on uh, what they would like to do. Uh, we've we've talked as a program or the furthest that we've talked as a program is really uh, what what is the argument right now? Um, is it the flag? Is it the military? Or is it all the other things that are happening right now? Is it what some perceive as the flag to represent versus other ways? So we, we as women's basketball, we're a little delayed, I think, as opposed to the professional side, especially college. Um it wasn't that long ago, I'm sure you remember where a lot of teams weren't out there for for the anthem. That was when you went back into the back into the tunnel to do your matchups and, and your last kind of thing before you run out. So I think it collegiately for basketball anyways, it, it's a conversation that needs to be needs to be spoken about.
0: Yeah. When we come back, I want to ask Brian about Uh, one of his new coaching duties, which is being a dad and also talking about living life in a not blue state of Arizona. You're listening to The Zag. We'll be right back. Brian, I've had a couple of folks on who are relatively new parents, and I asked them what's their strategy for raising a progressive kid? Um, You have a ways to go in terms of figuring that strategy out most likely, but what are some of the early designs you have on making sure your, your, your kid turns out progressive?
1: Well, to be quite honest, it's just the exposure of what my wife and I are doing and, and kind of the the life that we live, but also the lives that we're coming from, meaning, you know, the, the life through our parents. And I think the more we can expose uh, Luciano to uh, the 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 civil uh, unrest but also the social conversations that that are obvious that we care about and obviously that are happening uh, if we can expose him in the right way and have those conversations uh, when he's able to um, and, and then he, and get it and back it up with what he's actually viewing us doing and fighting for I think that's kind of the way to to go about it. Um, but again, uh, this is our first. <laughs> so, so, we are also learning how to be parents for the first time and, and, you know, what, what Luciano's observing and, and, you know, what we can do to help facilitate that conversation.
0: Yeah. And then do you feel like you'll stay in, in Arizona for a while? Would that make it harder to raise a progressive kid if you were there, say through kindergarten, middle school, high school?
1: Yeah, um you know it it it's I think that's a you know it's it's delicate here in in Phoenix because Phoenix in general is pretty progressive. It's when uh, you know you have the elected officials, but then when you go outside of Phoenix and I'm talking just close to downtown, whether it's Paradise Valley, Scottsdale, the East Valley, it gets conservative pretty quick. The thing that uh, Michelle and I we've we've talked about is you know, making sure that we um, expose them to cultures and diversity through obviously the school system, but at the same time, not uh, giving up, you know, what's important, which is the education and the mindfulness of, of what it means to learn. Um, the, I think the more difficult place would have been in Indiana. Uh, where we were for two and a half years, uh, you know, I was I was fortunate where I kind of got hooked up through the help of Mark Riddle um, with Robin Winston, who was a progressive former uh, Democratic Party chair, and he he started a firm where we were able to kind of get into the school systems and run referendums. And I think that would have been more difficult than Phoenix because it, it's very conservative there, from Indianapolis out.
0: And in the Phoenix context, the Arizona context, what do you see starting to to tip some of the places that are outside of the metropolitan areas, tip them into being more progressive? Is it only, only going to be a matter of time? Is there any actual winning issue that you feel like could change some of the political dynamic there?
1: Yeah, I think the biggest thing is social issues. Um, a lot of the conversation now is, is tipping towards, and, and this is kind of Uh, driven by the uh, Arizona Hispanic Chamber of Commerce and and also some of the um, ASU professors that I get to be in contact with, the conversation is by 2022, a lot of the surrounding areas, many of the areas that I talked about will be predominantly Hispanic Latino. So with that culture changing, and I'm talking culture of those cities and towns, I think the conversation is going to be a lot different and of those of the growing population in that community that particular community a lot of those uh, you know Gen Xers so the so the 35 38 plus they're now the first educated uh, Hispanic Latinos who are staying in the state raising progressive uh, children and that's when I think the conversation will really flip um I mean, there's been talk where this is really a purple state, but until obviously it goes blue a few times, I I don't think we can say that, but I don't think it's, we're now inside of a generation that, that it can happen.
0: And then do you have any sense on how the Senate seat with Jeff Flake will play out? You
1: know, he's, it's interesting because he plays favorites to, um, the, the business community, which I think will probably keep him safe. Although, uh, there's the anti McConnell wing that is really pushing him out. Um, I think what it will come down to like any other, uh, election right now is money, which he has. And I think he has the clout and I think, I think he's probably going to be safe.
0: Nice. Melissa. Well, I'm glad you came on. If we wanted to follow your, your coaching exploits throughout the season, what's the, what's the best way for us to keep tabs on your win loss record?
1: Yeah, pro- well, you won't see any losses, but you'll definitely see all the wins. Uh, <laughs> um, either either Facebook, Twitter, uh, B row thirty two, uh, or on my um, my Instagram, which is B row but it's uh, B E E E E R O
0: E thirty two. Nice, good stuff. Well, listen, good talking to you. Good luck in the season, and thanks everyone for listening to another episode of the Zag. You can find all the episodes we've done on iTunes. You can download them all right now. Or if you're not into iTunes, we're on an app called Podomatic. It's free. Listen to them in your car, at your house, in the shower, at work. We want you to enjoy the NLC experience as best you can through this podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon.